This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello and welcome to this new podcast series in which we are looking back at eyewitness accounts of events from history. And I'm reading from the Faber Book of Reportage, which was uh, printed in 1987, published in 1987, and contains many eyewitness accounts of famous events in history all the way from 430 BC up until when the book was published in the mid-1980s. I will occasionally perhaps delve into other archives as well, but I'm going to release podcasts more or less on the date of the event that I'm reading about. So here we are at the beginning of November and we're going to take an event from the 10th of November 1871, where H.M. Stanley finds Dr. David Livingstone, a Scottish missionary and explorer who had headed an expedition to Central Africa in 1866. He'd reached Lake Tanganyika in 1869. Some of his followers then deserted and concocted the story he'd been killed by the Nagoni tribe. But the New York Herald sent a correspondent, Mr. Henry M. Stanley, to Africa to find him. And this is Stanley's account of the 10th of November, 1871. A couple of hours brought us to the base of a hill, from the top of which the Kerengozi said we could obtain a view of the great Tanganyika Lake. Heedless of a rough path or of the toilsome steep, spurred onward by the cheery promise, the ascent was performed in a short time. I was pleased at the sight, and as we descended, it opened more and more into view until it was revealed at last as a grand inland sea, bounded bounded westward by an appalling and black-blue range of mountains, and stretching north and south without bounds, a grey expanse of water. From the western base of the hill was a three-hours march, though no march ever passed off so quickly. The hours seemed to have been quarters. We had seen so much that was novel and rare to us who had been travelling so long on the highlands. The mountains bounding the lake on the eastward receded and the lake advanced. We had crossed the Rouche or the Lynch and its thick belt of tall matted grass. We had plunged into a perfect forest of them and had entered into the cultivated fields which supply the port of Ujuji with vegetables and we soon stood at last on the summit of the last hill of the myriads we had crossed, and the port of Ujiji, embowered in palms, with the tiny waves of the silver waters of the Tanganyika rolling at its feet, was directly below us. We are now about descending. In a few minutes we shall have reached the spot where we imagine the object of our search, our fate will soon be decided. No one in that town knows we are coming, least of all, Do they know we are so close to them? If any of them ever heard of the white man at Unyangyembi, they must believe we are there yet. Well, we are but a mile from Ujiji now, and it's high time we should let them know a caravan is coming. So, commence firing, is the word passed along the length of the column, and gladly do they begin. They have loaded their muskets half full, and they roar like the broadside of a line of battleship. Down go the ramrods, sending huge charges home to the breach, and volley after volley is fired. 
The flags are fluttered. The banner of America is in front, waving joyfully. The guide is in the zenith of his glory. The former residents of Zanzita will know it directly and will wonder, as well they may, as to what it means. Never were the stars and stripes so beautiful to my mind. The breeze of the Tanganyika has such an effect on them. The guide blows his horn and the shrill, wild clangor of it is far and near and still the cannon muskets tell the noisy seconds. By this time the Arabs are fully alarmed. The natives of Ujiji, Waguhu, Warundi, Wangwana and I know not whom hurry up by the hundreds to ask what it all means. This fusillading, shouting and blowing of horns and flag flying. There are yambos shouted out to me by the dozen and delighted Arabs have run up breathlessly to shake my hand and ask anxiously where I come from. But I have no patience with them. The expedition goes far too slow. I should like to settle the vexed question by one personal view. Where is he? Has he fled? Suddenly, a man, a black man, at my elbow shouts in English, How do you do, sir? Hello. Who the deuce are you? I am the servant of Dr. Livingston, he says, and before I can ask any more questions, he is running like a madman towards the town. We have at last entered the town. There are hundreds of people around me. I might say thousands without exaggeration, it seems to me. It's a grand, triumphal procession. As we move, they move. All eyes are drawn towards us. The expedition at last comes to a halt. The journey is ended for a time, but I alone have a few more steps to make. There is a group of the most respectable Arabs, and as I come nearer I see the white face of an old man among them. He has a cap with a gold band round it, his dress is a short jacket of red blanket cloth, and his pants, well, I didn't observe. I'm shaking hands with him. We raise our hats, and I say, Dr. Livingston, I presume? And he says, yes. Now, on each occasion, I intend to bring you two different uh, passages uh, which either compare or contrast. So we've just had the meeting of Stanley with Livingston. Let's go back to 450 AD, roughly. Uh, we don't actually have the date of this, but it's a dinner that Priscus attended with Attila the Hun. Attila, the scourge of God, became king of the Huns in about 445 AD. Priscus went on an embassy to meet him on behalf of the Eastern Roman Empire. Attila invited both parties of us to dine with him about three o'clock that afternoon. We waited for the time of the invitation and then all of us, the envoys from the Western Romans as well, presented ourselves in the doorway facing Attila. In accordance with the national custom, the cupbearers gave us a cup, of, a cup for us to make our libations before we took our seats. When that had been done and we had sipped the wine, we went to the chairs where we could have dinner. All the seats were ranged down either side of the room, up against the walls. In the middle, Attila was sitting on a couch with a second couch behind him. Behind that, a few steps led up to his bed, which for decorative purposes was covered in ornate drapes made of fine linen, like those which Greeks and Romans prepare for marriage ceremonies. 
I think that the more distinguished guests were on Attila's right and the second rank on his left, where we were with Barikos, a man of some renown among the Scythians, who was sitting in front of us. Onegesios was to the right of Attila's couch, and opposite him were two of the king's sons on chairs. The eldest son was sitting on Attila's own couch, right on the very edge, with his eyes fixed on the ground in fear of his father. When all was sitting properly in order, a cupbearer came to offer Attila an ivy-wood bowl of wine, which he took and drank a toast to the man first, in order of precedence. The man thus honoured rose to his feet, and it was not right for him to sit down again until Attila had drunk some or all of the wine and had handed the goblet back to the attendant. The guests, taking their own cups, then honoured him in the same way, sipping the wine after making the toast. One attendant went round to each man in strict order after Attila's personal cupbearer had gone out. When the second guest and then all the others in their turn had been honoured, Attila greeted us in like fashion in our order of seating. After everyone had been toasted, the cupbearers left and a table was put in front of Attila and other tables for groups of three or four men each. This enabled each guest to help himself to the things put on the table without leaving his proper seat. Attila's servant entered first with plates full of meat, and those waiting on all the others put bread and cooked food on the tables. A lavish meal served on silver trenchers was prepared for us and the other barbarians, but Attila just had some meat on a wooden platter, for this was one aspect of his self-discipline. For instance, gold or silver cups were presented to the other diners, but his own goblet was made of wood. His clothes too were simple and no trouble was taken except to have them clean. The sword that hung by his side, the clasps of his barbarian shoes, and the bridle of his horse were all free from gold, precious stones, or other valuable decorations affected by other Scythians. When the food in the first plates was finished, we all got up, and no one, once on his feet, returned to his seat until he had, in the same order as before, drunk the full cup of wine that he was handed with a toast for Attila's health. After this honour had been paid him, we sat down again, and second plates were put on each table with other food on them. This also finished, everyone rose once more, drank another toast, and resumed his seat. As twilight came on, torches were lit, and two barbarians entered before Attila to sing some songs they had composed, telling of his victories and his valour in war. The guests paid close attention to them, and some were delighted with the songs, others excited at being reminded of the wars, but others broke down and wept if their bodies were weakened by age and their warrior spirits forced to remain inactive. After the songs, a Scythian entered, a crazy fellow who told a lot of strange and completely false stories, not a word of truth in them, which made everyone laugh. Following him came the Moor, Zircon, totally disorganised in appearance, clothes, voice and words. By mixing up the languages of the Italians with those of the Huns and the Goths, he fascinated everyone and made them break out into uncontrollable laughter. All that is, except Attila. He remained impassive without any change of expression and neither by word or gesture did he seem to share his merriment except that when his youngest son Ernest came in and stood by him, he drew the boy towards him and looked at him with gentle eyes. I was surprised that he paid no attention to his other sons and only had time for this one. But the barbarian at my side, 
who understood Italian and what I had said about the boy, warned me not to speak up and said that the seers had told Attila that his family would be banished but would be restored by the sun. After spending most of the night at the party, we left, having no wish to pursue the drinking any further. I hope you enjoyed those two readings from Witnesses in History. I aim to bring you uh, two or three of these podcasts every month. And if you click subscribe, you will be notified when the next one is available. Thank you for listening. Listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matthias, www.soundimage.org.